Alrighty. Well, as you guys know, times have been a little tough here in Vegas, right? A little bit. All right. Okay. So uh, it's understandingly that apparently last week, uh, Kenny found himself in some desperate need of cash. Okay. And so he went to the zoo hoping to find a job there feeding the animals, thinking surely he could do that, right? Well, we'll just skip that part. Anyway, so when he got there at the zoo, uh, there was no job openings available. But the manager, get this, seeing the size and the strength of Kenny, got an idea. He says, you know, he says, there's few creatures that attract attention like a gorilla. Now, unfortunately, ours died yesterday. But if we got you a special fursuit, would you be willing to imitate him for a few days? Yeah. So Kenny, he needs some cash, right? So he decides to give it a try. And, and in no time, actually, Kenny was quite successful. He was a hit with Vegas. Okay, he was beating his chest. He was bellowing. He was shaking the bars, the cage there. And, and the visitors at the zoo here in Vegas said, they'd never seen a gorilla with such intelligence. We'll keep going. But one day, Kenny, he was getting a little arrogant. And uh, while he was swinging on the trapeze and all that stuff, and he accidentally lost his grip, and he landed into the lion's den. Yeah, and this huge lion comes up to Kenny, man, and gives out this ferocious, right? And so Kenny, he's backing away in his gorilla suit there, you know, and he, and, but he couldn't cry out for help because then everybody would know he was a fake, right? So he's retreating, he's going back, and he's hoping to crawl back over the fence, but the, the lion just kept right on coming, following him. And so finally, Kenny in desperation goes, help, 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 to which the lion replied, shut up, stupid, you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> now, you, you like that one? Thank you. Now, how many guys would say that Al and Kenny should have gotten normal jobs? You know what I'm saying? Because Al is like, hey, I made you the line, Al. You know what I'm saying? Okay, but uh, if they would have gotten normal jobs, maybe they could have avoided some serious trouble, right? But that's right, folks. One last time this morning, I hope there's one embarrassing, troubling problem that you avoid the rest of your time here on earth as a Christian, and that is this, to never, ever, ever, ever doubt that this book, the Bible, really did come from God, okay? And folks, I've been saying that because uh, today, because of the skepticism, it doesn't matter. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter due to a century or more of skepticism and false criticism towards the Bible and unfortunately, hypocritical behavior from us Christians who never even pick up the Bible, okay, is people, even Christians, are starting to doubt that the Bible really did come from God. Therefore, one last time, we're going to conclude our study that's right did the bible really come from god and what we've been doing folks is taking a look at the 10 lines of solid logical evidence that the bible really did come from god okay and we've already seen the first eight lines showing us that the bible came from god hello and that was because hello the bible says so jesus says so the apostles say so history says so transmission standards say so manuscripts say so archaeology says so and last time if you hear bible prophecy says so okay and what we saw if you were here is that the bible is not only chock full of tons and tons of prophecies okay about the future that god gets right every single time 100 of the time hello he's god he doesn't lie Okay, but the point was this, that's exactly what you'd expect to find if this book did indeed come from God. It would therefore only contain things that only God can know, i.e. the future, and that's exactly what it has to the tunes of hundreds and hundreds, okay? But that is still not all. I've got two more to go, so guess what? There's got to be more. That's right, Tom, you're always on the ball. There's got to be more, and there is. Okay, the ninth line of logical evidence, believe it or not, I love this one, okay, especially with our skeptical society, is believe it or not, science says so. Believe it or not, science actually says, logically, the Bible had to come from God. But don't look, uh, listen to my word, let's listen to God's. So let's take a look at a scientific passage in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 40 is our opening text. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to begin. And if you find Isaiah, what do you do? Go to chapter 40. That's right. You guys are cool. Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we're going to take a look at some good old science. How many guys love science, huh? Wasn't that just the awesome class and all two of you, praise God, okay? Isaiah 40, verse 12 is where we're going to start. This is, I just, ooh, don't you just love the major prophets? I mean, they were just black and white. They cut through the chase. They didn't flower everything up, man. They just told you like it was. If you're in trouble with God, you're in trouble with God, okay? And he's going to set it straight on who God is. Hello, don't you know who God is? And this is some, the context of what he's talking about. Isaiah 40, starting with verse 12, let's take a look at what he says. He says, now... Who has measured the waters in the hall of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Okay, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales? Or, and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of who? The Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? 
We never try to give God advice, do we? That's a whole other sermon, okay? And then now, who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way, as if he does things wrong? Okay, who, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket, man. Uh, they're regarded as dust on the scales. He, God, weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon, all its trees there, is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, God, all the nations are as nothing. They're re, uh, regarded by him as worthless, less than nothing. You're going to take him on? Excuse me? Okay. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Okay. What will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman, he casts it. And a goldsmith, he overlays it with gold. He fashions silver chains for it. A, a man too poor pre uh, uh, to present such an offering. He selects wood that will not rot. And then he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol so it won't topple. Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? He says, don't you know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the what? circle of the what the earth and its people are like grasshoppers he god stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in okay now folks if you're paying attention according to our text well how do we know the bible came from god apparently the ninth line of evidence is that science says so okay and we know that because what did we just read this is just one passage and isaiah he tells us that god is not just all powerful and hello you might not want to mess with him let alone try to give him advice Okay, but he says right there, it was he, God. This is why he's so all-powerful. It was he, God, who created the earth. And notice what shape he said it's in. It's a circle. It's round, okay? And this is important to know, and that's why I wanted you to read it with your own eyes, because the skeptics will usually come back, and they'll say something like this when it comes to science and the Bible, okay? They might give credence to what we saw uh, last time if you were here. They'll say, well, okay, fine. Maybe you got me. Maybe the Bible isn't historically inaccurate, Okay, after all what we saw last week with archaeology verifies that it's completely accurate, 100%. Okay, but we know that the Bible, okay, could not have come from God because it contains scientific errors. It contradicts known science. Have you heard that before? Okay, and they say, well, and be, therefore, because of that, it could not have been coming from God because God's holy and can't lie, and we find these errors so it couldn't come from God. And here's my whole point in saying that. Then what they will do, they'll just make that blanket statement and then they'll cite off as supposed proof that the Bible has supposed scientific errors in it and they'll flatly say this. Well, the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. How many of you guys have heard that? Okay, folks, it's like, excuse me, read your Bible. What did we just read? No, it doesn't. The Bible clearly says that the earth is what? It's round. Isaiah said it was a circle, okay? Maybe some other entity used to teach that the earth uh, was flat, but the Bible never did, okay? And that's the whole point, okay? But then they'll go on to say, well, excuse me, wait a second. Does not the Bible contain phrases like this? The four corners of the earth? Isn't that saying the same thing? Isn't that saying that it's flat? No, all the four corners is talking about is the scope of the earth, the breadth of the earth, not the shape of the earth. Okay, all it's talking about is to the ends of the earth. In fact, we use this same kind of verbiage today and we don't call people liars or there's some conspiracy going on. Let me give you one example. I'll guarantee you every day, if you're up that early enough or late or whatever, uh, we will hear on the news from the weatherman, he'll start talking about two things. He'll talk about sunrise and sunset. <gasps> He's a liar. We can't trust him. That contradicts known science. Everybody knows that the sun doesn't rise or set. The earth is the one that revolves around the sun. We can't trust him, right? We don't say that, folks. We know that what he's talking about is the weatherman's common verbiage. He's all he's just saying is when the sun appears and disappears, right? That's it. There's nothing to it. The Bible uses the same common language. Although it does remind me of the classic saying, this is profound. Listen, um, how many of you guys heard this? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me 350,000 times and you're probably a weatherman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, that's beside the point, okay? But yes, granted, the Bible may not be a scientific book, okay? It's not a scientific journal. It wasn't written that way or meant to be that way. But listen, it does not contradict true, known, accurate science. Why? Because it came from God and God can't lie and he doesn't lie, okay? In fact, you'll be happy to know when you look at the evidence, the scientific evidence in the Bible, you'll see, folks, that it's not science uh, that's ahead of the Bible. It's science that's actually catching up with what the Bible's been saying for thousands of years okay let me give you some examples of some good old science in the bible god had it figured out hello long before 
uh, our scientific community came on the scene. Uh, first verse of the Bible, the universe had a beginning, okay? Can you imagine how many billions, if not trillions of dollars that we are paying for as taxpayers to supposedly go out to the edge of the stars and pay for all this equipment and do all these experiments to figure out where did the universe come from? And you could have just read the first verse of the first page of the Bible. But that's actually where they're realizing, oh, I guess God was right. Well, the earth had a beginning, okay? Starting with the studies of Albert Einstein in the early 1900s, continuing on up till today, science has confirmed, in fact, the Bible was right. The universe did, in fact, have a beginning. And this was at a time when most people thought that the universe just always existed, which is illogical, but science has proven them wrong, and yet, once again, the Bible is right. The Bible says that the universe is composed of time, space, matter, and energy, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. The first three verses of Genesis describe all known aspects of creation. Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, and then God said, let there be light, energy. Listen, no other creation account agrees with this known scientific fact. They make it up, it just popped into existence, or it came from the blood of an elephant, or... But the Bible got it right, and we know it's right, okay? From the very first page of the Bible. No new matter is being created. Genesis 2.2, this is called the first law of thermodynamics. How many guys read that this morning on the back of that Cheerios? Huh? <laughs> I'm telling you, it should be there. Anyway, it states that the qu total quantity of energy and matter is constant. Yes, we can manipulate energy and matter into uh, uh, one thing into another, but the total quantity, amount of mass, stays the same. And that's exactly what God said. He said creation is what? Finished. And we know that scientifically. It's finished. It's done. Exactly like God said. Uh, the universe is running down. This is the second law of thermodynamics, Psalm 102. This states that everything in the universe is running down. It's decaying. How many guys can verify that? Every day you get up, it's, it's, you, we, we saw an advertisement for creative movement, didn't we? Just getting out of bed is a creative movement. In the we won't go there. That's the wrong kind. But anyway, so it's running down. We're decaying, okay? And uh, this happened when the Bible says mankind rebelled against God, sent into the world, and we began to decay, okay? Now, modern science verifies the universe is, in fact, growing old like a garment, Hebrews chapter 1. And by the way, evolution contradicts this. Evolution says we're getting better, 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 better. All the evidence scientifically says, no, we're, for some reason, getting worse and decaying and falling apart. It agrees, again, with the biblical account. Life only comes from life. This is called the law of biogenesis. Okay, scientists observe that only life comes from existing life. Can I give you a really good, clear example of that? How many guys came from mom and dad? Two life forms. Praise God for your answer. And how many guys realize that if you didn't have any mom and dad, you're not gonna have kids either? You wouldn't be here raising your hand either, okay? But you got it. Life only comes from life. That's what we see in the Bible, okay? Spontaneous generation, that's what evolution would have you and I believe. The emergence of life from non-living matter has never, ever once ever been observed. Ever and never will. All observations show that life comes only from life. Again, the theory of evolution contradicts with this known scientific law, okay? I'm sh maybe you should get a new theory. It's my uh, theory. Uh, vast number of stars, Jeremiah 33. At a time when less than 5,000 stars were visible to the human eye, God stated in the Bible that the stars of the heaven were innumerable. And we didn't even figure this out until the 17th century. This is Galileo's time. And we glimpsed the immensity of our universe once they came across this thing called the telescope. Today, astronomers estimate there's 10,000 billion trillion stars, which is a one followed by 25 zeros. How many of you guys would like to have that job counting that? Okay. Anyway, but listen, yet they even admit, even after those calculations, that number is woefully inadequate. In other words, we, we just can't number them. There's so many. Exactly what God's been saying the whole time. Humans are made from the earth, Genesis 2. Scientists have discovered the human body is comprised of, guess what? 28 base trace elements, all of which are found, guess where? The earth, the dust of the earth. We know that scientifically. Could have just read the Bible. Hydrologic cycle, Job 36 talked about this for thousands of years ago. The Bible declared that God draws up water and he distills from the rain the mist in which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. He talks about the hydrologic cycle. And it was only until recently, folks, that the hydrologic cycle was described, discovered, if you will, by meteorologists because in the past it confused people to say, well, wait a second, we see that the mighty rivers are going into the ocean, but it never rises. How come? Well, just read your Bible. It talks about this hydrologic cycle uh, that explains that. The jet stream, this is cool, Ecclesiastes 1. At a time when it was thought the winds blew straight, here's what the Bible was declaring the whole time. The wind goes towards the south, turns around to the north, the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit, right? It's a path. King Solomon wrote that, folks, uh, 3,000 years ago, yet it wasn't until World War II that the airmen discovered, guess what? There's a jet stream circuit in the sky and could have saw that 3,000 years ago. 
uh, from Solomon. Air has weight, Job 28, okay? Once time, we thought that air obviously weighed, uh, was weightless, but 4,000 years ago, Job said in the Bible, a weight for the wind. And it's only recently been calculated by meteorologists that the average thunderstorm holds thousands of tons of rain, and to carry this load, logically, air must have mass or weight. Once again, the Bible got it right. We're just now catching up. Earth hangs in space, Job 26. Other sources declared, listen, that the earth sat on the back of an elephant or a turtle, take your pick, or was being held up by Atlas. But the whole time, the Bible's been stating what we now know scientifically to be true, that the earth hangs on nothing in, i.e., space. The Bible talks about that. Oceans contain springs. This is cool. How do you get around this one? Job 38. The ocean obviously is very deep, and at the very bottom, especially the further you go down, is total darkness. And you get into some of those freaky creatures. Have you seen that thing with that thing that dangles down? Okay, never mind. And it's pretty creepy. And, uh, but anyway, but the whole time, we didn't know. We didn't go down there until recently. The whole time, the Bible's been saying, Job, that there's springs of the sea. It wasn't until the 1970s, folks, with the help of research submarines, that oceanographers have discovered. Guess what's at the bottom? Springs. How could Job have known that? He can't go down there. Exactly. It's like the Bible came from God or something. Mountains are at the bottom of the ocean. Jonah 2 talks about this. And again, only in the last century, we discovered that, that there are indeed towering mountains down there. Huge, massive trenches, bigger, I believe, than even the Grand Canyon are down there. How would, how would he know that? Okay. Uh, uh, the sea has paths and channels. Psalm 8. This is cool. 3,000 years ago, the Bible describes the paths of the seas, okay? In the 19th century, Matthew Moore, he's the father of oceanography, for those of you wondering, he actually read the Bible, Psalm 8. And he says, really? I wonder if that's true. He researched it, discovered that there were, in fact, ocean currents that followed specific paths in the seas. And today, marine navigators use that information to reduce their time to travel, just follow the highway that God said was there the whole time. A couple more. Life is in the blood, Leviticus 17. Up until 120 years ago, sick people were actually bled. Put leeches on them. Wouldn't that cool? How many of you guys like to go home today with a leech? Huh? Praise God. That's, we'll stick to those nifty keychains or something giveaways, but not the leech. <laughs> might get in the newspaper though, but anyway. So, but uh, no, okay. They used to use leeches. They used to bleed them to make them better, get rid of the blood. Okay. People died for that. George Washington was one of them. That's how he actually died. Okay, but today we know that healthy blood is necessary to bring the life-giving nutrients to every cell in the body. Life is in the blood. It's what the Bible's been saying all the time. Sexual immorality is dangerous to your health. 1 Corinthians 6. The Bible warns, quote, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Hey, folks, come on. They even have classes in school about this now. You're just now catching up? 2,000 years ago, this was down for us. Uh, the Bible's been saying any sexual relationship is unsafe outside of marriage. Okay, don't do it, okay? You're going to run into trouble, okay? A disease can spread by physical contact and the need for quarantines. Leviticus 13, long before we understood that, folks, uh, in the medical realm and the need to quarantine people. The Bible's been saying the whole time, God commanded the Israelites that those who were contagious with the disease, you need to quarantine them. It can spread physically, okay? Believe it or not, that was a recent discovery in the medical community. When dealing with diseases, clothes and bodies should be washed with running water, Leviticus 15, for centuries, people washed in standing water, but today we know that, especially in the medical field, they wash it under what? Running water to wash the germs away. God said it a long time ago, folks. Okay, it's right there in the Bible. Sanitation, Deuteronomy 23, 3,500 years ago, God commanded his people to have a place outside the camp, okay, where they could relieve themselves and bury the waste. It wasn't until World War I that we saw that more soldiers died from disease than war because they didn't do what the Bible said. They didn't isolate human waste, okay? Follow what the scripture says. Atomic fission, 2 Peter 3. Uh, scripture states, they quote, the elements will melt with fervent heat and when the earth and the uh, heavens are dissolved by fire. Okay, today we now understand that if the elements of the atom are loose, guess what's gonna happen? Enormous heat, energy, radiation, it's called the atomic bomb, okay? Is, and the Bible's been talking about it for 2,000 years. In fact, that thing that's going to happen right there, okay, right before God uh, takes out the old heavens and the old earth, that's how he's going to do it. He's going to tell the atoms to loose, and the whole, not just earth, the whole universe and the earth is going to go up in one giant atomic fireball preparing the way for the new heavens and the new earth. You want to make sure that you're a part of that one. There is a big bang coming. I'll agree. But you don't want to be a part of that one. You want to make sure you're going to the new heavens and the new earth. A couple more here. Light can be divided. Job 38, Isaac Newton uh, discovered this. He discovered that white light is actually made up of seven uh, colors which can be parted or divided, okay, and then recombined. Scientists figured this out four centuries ago. God's been saying it for about 4,000 years. 
Okay, not a new discovery, you're just discovered. Light travels in a path, Job 38. The Bible talks about a light going in a way or a path. Okay, people thought that light previously traveled instantaneously, but today we know it travels in a straight line in a path at 186,000 uh, miles uh, per second. Exactly what the Bible says. Creation's made from invisible particles. Uh, that's in Hebrews 11. Not until the 19th century was it discovered these visible uh, matter uh, consists of invisible elements called atoms. Okay, the Bible's been saying that the whole time. God created mankind from one blood. Hello, Acts 17. This was a 1995 study, okay, of a section of Y chromosomes from 38 different men from different ethnic groups from around the world. And guess what they discovered? They all come from one man. I think I know his name. Adam. How much did we spend on that study? And the other studies and other studies just because we refuse to look at what the Bible has to say. We're paying for that, folks, by the way. Okay, genetic mixing of different seeds is forbidden. Ooh, this is a hot topic. You might think this is kind of weird, but we're now starting to see you violate God's command, you run into trouble. Leviticus 19, the Bible warns against mixing seeds as this will result in inferior or dangerous crops. There is now growing evidence that unnatural genetically modified crops may be harmful. Hmm. Maybe we should listen to what God has to say. In the Bible, you tweak with it, you're going to get messed up. Pest control, a couple more. Leviticus 25, farmers are plagued with insects today, yet God had a surefire remedy if you just do what he says. You are to set aside one year in seven when no crops were raised. Why? Because if the crop is denied one year in seven, the pests have nothing to subsist on, and therefore they're controlled. They lay their eggs in the previous crop, and then they eat the next one and keep reproducing. But if you take a year off, they have nothing to eat and they die. No chemicals, no nothing. Just do it God's way. Works every time. And finally, uh, or two more, olive oil and wine is useful on wounds. We see this in the Samaritan account. You bandage the wound with olive oil and wine. Why? Because we now know wine contains ethyl alcohol, which is a great disinfectant, and so is olive oil. And olive oil is also a skin moisturizer and protector and soothing uh, lotion. Now, during the Middle Ages and right on up to the early 20th century, millions of people died because they didn't know how to treat and protect open wounds. If you would have been a good Samaritan and literally did what God said to do, we'd been fine. But again, people scoff at the Bible. And finally, I love this one. Laughter promotes healing. Let's try that. <laughs> Don't you feel better? Well, listen to the Bible. Proverbs 17, 22. Recent studies confirm what King Solomon wrote 3,000 years ago. A merry heart does good like what? Medicine. It's now known as a common fact that laughter reduces levels of certain stress hormones, which in turn helps us to balance our immune systems, which in turn help our bodies to fight off disease. Just laughing. So for your own good, would you please repeat after me? I will always laugh at Pastor Billy's opening dumb corny jokes. Ready to go. <laughs> right on. In fact, let's, let's give it a try. Let's back up the train a little bit. Uh, to which the wine replied, shut up, stupid. You're going to get us both fired. Don't you feel better? Let's just close. Man, my liver's exercised. I feel great. Okay, but seriously, folks, uh, when you take a look at the facts, okay, you see that the Bible not only does not contradict accurate true science, but what do you see? It's actually science that's been catching up to what the Bible's been saying the whole time. Okay, and yet this is another thing that skeptics do. They not only deny this scientific evidence in the Bible, but they, they, they uh, ignore it, and then they act like somehow being a Christian and a scientist is an oxymoron right? It's character assassination. They act like only intellectually inept people become Christians, right? And there's no way once you become a Christian, apparently you just checked your brain at the door, that there's no way that you could understand true science like us. Excuse me? Study your own history in the scientific community. Many of the first and greatest scientists of all time were Christians and bare minimum believed in a God. Okay, men such as Johann Kepler, Blaise Pascal, uh, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, uh, William Thompson Kelvin, and even, listen, Albert Einstein. I'm not saying he was a Christian, but he believed in the existence of a God. And here's what he said. He says, I want Einstein. He says, I want to know how God created this world. He says, I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon or in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are just details. And he was fond of two saints. He said this, one, God does not play dice. In other words, not by chance, which means it's designed, which means there's a designer. Okay, and two, he said, science without religion is lame. And religion without science is blind. In other words, yes, they can coexist. You can be a Christian and a scientist. 
Okay, they can work together. Why? Because God doesn't lie. And of course, he is holy. He doesn't contradict true accurate science. Now, neither do the skeptics say what they do to people who disagree with their faulty science. You see, we're under this illusion that the scientific community is out there to discover the facts and nothing but the facts, right? That ain't true, folks. When somebody disagrees with them, even based on their scientific findings, here's what they do to them. They fire them. I'm sorry. Who's being closed-minded now? right? Here's some actual occurrences of that. Roger DeHart, he's a science teacher in Seattle. Listen to this. He was told he could not inform students of errors in the textbooks by simply passing out articles from current science journals. It's their own journals. And he was saying, hey, it's not accurate. And he was just being a good teacher saying, hey, oh, disregard this one because we know that's not true. He got in trouble for that. That's science? Oh, it gets even worse. This guy, Kevin Haley, he's a biology teacher in Oregon Community College. He lost his job for exposing errors in the textbooks. What, do you want to deliberately lie to the kids? Hey, if all you got is lies to support your theory, how many guys would say it's time to get a new theory? Okay, excuse me? Uh, William Dimsky, he was fired at Baylor University because he advocated intelligent design because that's where the facts begin to go. Forrest Mims, he was a science writer for 20 years. He published in National Geographic, Science Digest, American Journal of Physics, 60 magazines and newspapers, but he was denied a job by Scientific American because he was a creationist. That's it, not because of the facts. But I thought you were interested in science. You're supposed to just take all the information in and do it. No, it's a closed system, folks, that we've been lied to. Rod Levake in Minnesota, he's a biology teacher. He was reassigned just because he, he dared to doubt Darwin's theory. And he says, no, get out of here. Uh, Dean Kenyon, he was a tenured professor at San Francisco uh, State University. He wrote books for years about how wonderful evolution was. But then one day he became a Christian and they fired him. All right, but he, he hung on. He said, you can't fire me. You know, it's a union. I've got 20 years. So they said, okay, they put him in as a lab assistant washing test tubes. And he had to go through a whole big lawsuit just to get his job back simply because he doubted evolution. Folks, I don't know about you, but this is the other half they don't tell us. We think it's just some great open community and we're just going to deal with the facts. And that's all they would ever share with us. No, what you see is something I would say bare minimum, very unscientific. And that is, excuse me, you can't even discuss an alternative, even though the facts scientifically are leading in that direction. I can't even have a discussion with you, lest you fire me. Again, who's being the ignorant, biased, closed-minded person now, with all due respect? Okay? But you might be thinking, Pastor Billy, okay, listen, maybe those scientists, that's not very scientific behavior there with that hypocrisy. I can't even discuss it. Okay, uh, maybe they're, they're not being open-minded and that's not good science. But I know of something that the Bible gets wrong concerning science, okay? Earlier in this study, a couple weeks ago, you talked about how people in the Bible live some 900 years, right? Excuse me, how can that be scientific? That's ridiculous. Folks, I'm telling you, just keep reading your Bible and trust God. He doesn't lie. Because we now know, even today, yes, it is, listen, scientifically possible for somebody to live even a thousand years. And this is what we see as a clue in the Genesis account, chapter one, verse six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from what? Water, okay? And so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, okay? And it was so. And so God called the expanse what? Sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day, okay? Now, if you're paying attention to the text there, we see that the Bible says that when God created, it's a little neat text there, but it's loaded. When God created the sky, the atmosphere, he did so by creating an expanse between the waters that were on the earth, between apparently some waters that used to be in the upper atmosphere, okay? And this uh, text gives us the conditions of the pre-flood world that there was probably a water canopy surrounding the Earth's atmosphere. And here's the point. This would not only explain why so much mega massive amounts of water came down at the time of the flood. Because that canopy was coming down too. It wasn't just normal rain. Okay. But two, it would also explain why everything we see in the fossil record was huge, was big. Because this water canopy, uh, as we know, and I don't have time to get into that. I wish I did. Uh, produced giantism. That's why we find trees in the fossil record a thousand feet tall. That's why we've seen before we find fossilized beavers eight feet long. Spiders two feet wide. Dragonflies five feet wingspan. Because that would produce a hyperbaric oxygen chamber type environment which would produce giantism. That's exactly what we see 
Okay, in the biblical account and in the fossil record, it agrees. It makes sense if you just stick with the Bible. And believe it or not, it also explains why mankind could in fact live for a thousand years. We know this scientifically. Let's take a look at the facts, okay? What most people don't realize is that a water canopy, again, if you could picture it there, surrounding the Earth's atmosphere would have provided the perfect conditions for you and I, even today, if we could get it back going, to live long lifespans. And this is because we would have been protected from the harmful radiation that beats down on us from the sun that shortens our lifespan. Did you know that? The sun doesn't just emit light, folks. It also emits harmful radiation in the form of x-rays and ultraviolet rays and gamma rays. And, and just like we get in the doctor's office, okay? And, and this is important. Lest you think it isn't harmful, have you noticed this routine that they do to you? Okay? This is why they proceed to give you a lead-lined vest and then they proceed to run out of the room. How many of you guys ever wanted to say, no, 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 stay in here, pal, with me. Hold my hand, do something, give me a water, right? No, they, they run out of the room, right? Why? Because x-rays might work great to see the inside of you, but prolonged exposure could mean the death of you. And this is what's going on every single day, folks, whether you realize or not, with the sun. Even though we might not see it, we're being literally rayed to death, okay? Our bodies, naturally, the way God's wired them, we put up a good fight. Uh, our cells, they, they, they resist, they repair itself. But over time, uh, even though you're making repairs, over time, we start to lose the battle and this happens, okay? And pretty soon, our bodies try as we might, it just wrinkles up, shrivels up, and it just, we'll, we'll just move on, okay? But anyway, that's right. But that's what happens, okay? But here's the point. A water canopy would have prevented all of this, okay? It would have protected us from that, okay? And this is because lead and concrete, those vests, lead and concrete isn't the only thing that shields us from radiation, so does, guess what? Water, okay? Okay, therefore, prior to the flood, the harmful effects caused by the sun's radiation on our lifespan would have been shielded and our life expectancy would have gone way up to the max, okay, amongst other things. And it also explains, if you read the biblical account, after the flood and you do a chronology of the people's ages, guess what they do? At the, when the water canopy's down, then the ages start to go down exactly uh, after the flood. This is why you see all of a sudden people go from around 900 to immediately after the flood to about 400. And then it drops down quickly to 200, down to what we got around today, about 100 you max out. Okay, but prior to the flood, you were just a kid at 100 years old. Isn't that cool? Right on? Some of you would be still be wearing diapers today, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, I wouldn't be much taller than I am right now. It's a little embryo, you know, with my age. But anyway, that's right. Anyway, so anyway, and we see modern examples even today. If you're shielded from the sun, your life expectancy uh, will actually go up too. For instance, studies have shown that there's a noticeable longevity in people's lives who live in steep canyons and valleys that provide a natural shield against the sun. Okay, we know that. We also know that there was a considerable jump in longevity from 1911 to 1951, when automation and transportation and production moved people, you started to work not on the farm so much, you went into the cities and worked inside buildings so that you got shielded away from the sun. And finally, this is wild. There's the example of longevity, what happened to the Dickerson children, that's these guys right here, and they were actually secreted away in an attic until they were teenagers. Obviously, it's a horrible situation, but there was an interesting side effect by way of example. Here you can see co uh, pictures of Connie, Gordon, and Glinda Dickerson, respectively, and at the time of this picture, believe it or not, after being in that attic all their, those years, they were 18, 15, and 13 right there at that picture. Okay? And it looks like they literally stopped aging. I'm not obviously recommending doing that, but I'm just saying, you see different examples of how you get protected from the sun. Okay? They were still quite healthy and intelligent, praise God. But the time that they spent there had an anti-aging effect on them. Okay? In fact, one guy, Dr. Carl Baugh, decided to take it a step further, and he's done all kinds of experiments. He's created this biosphere, these atmosphere. He's put animals into it. They've not only gotten bigger, except he did this piranha thing, it's massive. But uh, don't have time to get into that. But, but he, so uh, awesome were his results that NASA actually requested to see his results. They wanted to use it for the space program. This is an actual NASA report. Listen to this. In one of their experiments they did involving three scientists living on the ocean floor in this biosphere that they created, Here's the actual report. They stayed in there about one to three months. Quote, when they left, they were all middle-aged with gray, herring, gray hair and low libidos. When they returned, their hair was clear of gray. Their wrinkles had started to disappear. This is a report from NASA. Okay, started to disappear. And their sex drive had so increased that their wives complained about it to NASA. <laughs> That's a direct quote. I'm not making that up. I'm serious. Okay, 
Now, it turns out in that atmosphere that certain glands and organs were reactivated and blood tests showed an unusual level of hormones that are normally associated with the growth in young children. It was, I love this one. It was further speculated what would happen if they took this knowledge, built a room with this kind of atmosphere and slept it eight hours a day. This is from NASA. Last I heard, it's a scientific community. Here's what they discovered based on the scientific data. If you created that room, like the early atmosphere pre-flood, listen, the man said for every one day spent in there, one year would be added to your life until you maxed out at about a thousand years old. Wow. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Even that, the Bible gets right. Interesting. Folks, these are not only interesting facts to share with the person who's a, a skeptical, but what you can point out is, yes, you don't have to scoff at any passage, not even the 900 and how many old people can be. We even know today that it is scientifically possible. The Bible never gets anything wrong that, uh, with true known science. It's actually science that is catching up to what the Bible's been saying all along. You don't need to doubt. And folks, once again, this is why you can't have it both ways. You cannot agree with some of the Bible's teaching and then turn around and deny its authenticity because the Bible not only does not contradict true known science, but it shares scientific data centuries, thousands of years before we even figured it out. Why? Because it literally came from God and he doesn't lie. The big one, the final one, the 10th line of logical evidence. Can I have a drum roll, Bill? People who are not named Bill, you can go ahead and do that too. That's right. Uh, is this, that's right. Believe it or not, we know the Bible came from God is because statistics say so. How many of you guys like statistics? Wasn't that a cool class? Man, I've got science, statistics, that's good, okay? Let's take a look at what the Bible says statistically is going to take place, okay? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25 says, For you have, not been, you have been, uh, uh, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and what? enduring word of God. Why? Well, because here's the facts. Uh, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. We come up, we come down. It's just going to happen, right? All right? But on the contrary, the word of the Lord stands what? Forever. And this was the word that was preached to you, okay? So here we see that the 10th line of evidence is that statistics say so. And what did we just read? Statistically, even though one for one, men come and men go, just like the flowers of the field come up and they go down, right? Statistically, that's what's going to happen. Contrary to that, unlike that, the word of God is going to stand how long? Forever. Why? Because it came from God and no power on hell or earth is ever going to do away with it. It is going to stand forever. And this is driven home, folks, when you take a look at the statistical data concerning the makeup of the Bible. It proves, number one, that there's no way that man can ever whip this up. And no, number two, there's no way, man, whatever you try, you're not going to get rid of it. You're not going to get rid of it. Let's take a look at some of those statistics we saw prior and some more. It, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year time span. It was written over 40 different generations. It was written by more than 40 authors from a different including uh, kings and peasants and philosophers, fishermen, poets, statements, etc. Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel was a prime minister. Luke was a doctor. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. And Paul was a rabbi. It was written in different places. It was Moses wrote it in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote it in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Uh, Paul inside prison walls. Luke did it while he was traveling. John, while he was in the island of Patmos, uh, people wrote it during the military campaign. It was written at different times. David wrote it during times of war. Solomon in times of peace. Uh, it was written in different moods. Some wrote it at the heights of joy. Others did it at the uh, depths of despair. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages. You got Hebrew, portion of Aramaic, and Greek. And it never once contradicts itself, and it has the same message through and through. In other words, there's no stinking way, I don't care how many charges people could say, there's no way it's impossible for man to whip this book up. Okay? But that's still the tip of the iceberg. Now add to that the incredible scope of data and various topics that the Bible covers. The Bible talks about law. It talks about marriage. It talks about government. It talks about life. It talks about death. It talks about eternity. It talks about the beginning. It talks about heaven and hell. Okay, it's not just a one-track story. It only deals with the sports, and therefore these people made sure they always got that topic right. It's got all kinds of topics, and it never contradicts itself. And then on top of that, it utilizes different literary types. 
okay? It wasn't just written by one guy in one form, and he was very careful to get it consistent. The Bible's written in different literary times, such as poetry, portions of it, history, a biography, diaries, parables, allegories, and it still holds on to its unity, and it still does not contradict itself. In fact, this, there's no way this could come about. Okay, the Bible, from beginning to end, after 1,500 years, has the exact same message. Man can never do this. Let's take a look at just a couple of the factors of Genesis to Revelation and how they are completely unified. What are the odds of something like this happening? Genesis talks about the book of beginnings. Revelation just happens to be the last book. Uh, it talks about the book of the end. Uh, Genesis says the earth was created. Revelation says the earth is going to pass away. Genesis says Satan, and it's his first rebellion. Praise God. Revelation, Satan's final rebellion. Genesis talks about the sun to govern the day. Uh, Revelation says there's no need of the sun. Genesis talks about darkness called night. Revelation says there's not going to be any more night. Uh, Genesis talks about the entrance of sin. Praise God. Revelation says there's going to be an end to sin. Genesis talks about a curse being pronounced. Revelation says, praise God, there's no more curse. Uh, Genesis talks about death entering the world. Revelation says there's not going to be any more death. Genesis records the account of man driven from Eden. By, the Revelation says man's going to be restored. Genesis talks about the tree of life was guarded for man. Revelation says now we get access again to the tree of life. Genesis talks about sorrow and suffering entering. Revelation says there isn't going to be any more sorrow. Genesis says uh, we see the marriage of the first Adam. Revelation talks, praise God, the marriage of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Uh, Genesis talks about man's dominion ceased and Satan's began. Praise God. Revelation says Satan's dominion ended and man's uh, is restored. And finally, Genesis talks about the doom of Satan pronounced. There's a promise Genesis 3.15. Revelation says it's going to happen. The doom of Satan is executed. He is going to be chucked into the lake of fire. From beginning to end. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I don't have time to share all the factors. That's just a, a smattering of the amazing unity between Genesis and Revelation. And here's the point, folks. They were, there's about a 1,500-year time span between Moses when he wrote Genesis, okay, from when John wrote the book of Revelation, Revelation, and therefore they didn't know each other, so they couldn't collaborate. Well, you write this, and I'm going to make sure I'm going to do this. And if you add that, then I'm going to counter with this. And, then we, and yet what do we see? Complete unity, complete harmony, telling the same story 1,500 years later. That can't happen by chance. Starts it, finishes it. Folks, I'm telling you, and that's still not all. The Bible is unique alone in its circulation. No other book in history, folks, has such a circulation as the Bible. In fact, every year there are so many Bibles sold that it consistently tops the New York bestsellers uh, times list, but it's left off due to the fact that, guess what? It would always be listed as number one. And they take it off. Okay, the Bible has been read by more people, published in more languages than any other book in the history of mankind. Absolutely no book compares to that of the Bible. And the Bible, unlike any other book on the planet, has been attacked viciously. And it always comes out on top. Two, uh, two guys said this, says, no other book has been so chopped, listen, so chopped, so knifed, so sifted, so scrutinized, so vilified than the Bible. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology has been subject to such mass attack as the Bible with such venom and skepticism upon every character, every line, and every tenet? Yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. Infidels for 1,800 years have tried refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it still stands today solid as a rock. Its circulation increases more and more, and it's even more loved and cherished and read than ever before. If the book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They all die, yet the Bible still lives. Why? Because we read in 1 Peter, man's going to come, man's going to go, but God's word is going to stand forever. Okay? In fact, uh, Voltaire, the skeptic, learned this the hard way. Check this out. Uh, Voltaire, if you're not familiar, he's the French infidel who died in 1778. And he made this prediction. He said that in 100 years from his time, that Christianity would be swept from existence and passed off into history. But here's what happened. Voltaire passed off into history while the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost all parts of the world. Okay, and listen, and concerning the boast of Voltaire of the extinction of Christianity and the Bible in 100 years, only 50 years after Voltaire's death, did the Geneva Bible Society uh, use his press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. 
In other words, it's God's way of saying, I think, of saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, in Jesus' name, once again, okay? But that's still real. One more, folks. The Bible alone has the ability to transform a life, right? Okay, no matter what somebody's done, no matter how far you've gone off the deep end, no matter what your background, what you've done, the Bible says that God can save you, God can forgive you, God can transform your life. You do not get these effects with secular psychology, self-help seminars, man's wisdom or religion. You can't do it by your own bootstraps. The Bible alone records us that God can transform you. Even if society has said, there is no hope for you. Like it did for this guy. Let's take a look. 68, 69, 70, 71. Those were years I was in the military. I was in Northern Thailand, um, up close to the border of Laos and Cambodia kind of in the boonies in, um, in a listening station there and, um, and had gone through some real uh, traumatic uh, changes. There was also this breaking inside. I just checked out. There really was no redeeming piece of evidence. There was no way that the human existence could be justified. I made the conclusion, stepped over the little picket fence into Nana Land that night. Embarrassed, totally humiliated that I was a human being because of all I'd been, all I'd seen human beings do, all I'd been a participator in. Of course, when, when you throw off, any kind of responsibility of being a human being, then, then you have no uh, restraint. And so uh, when you do that, they, they pretty soon they come in the white jackets and take you away, you know. And so they came in the white jackets, and of course they had to put clothes on me and everything because that, you know, there's no restraint there either. No reason to wear clothes if you're not a human being. Um, but they took me to the hospital in Munich. Um, to the mental ward and did all of their tests and their their diagnosis was actually no hope and they decided the psychosis was too deep because I'd seen death close to me, people I loved, people I cared for, in fact I had to care for their bodies, things like that in northern Thailand and, and they found that it was really based in this traumatic turn that that had made in my thinking and um, that I would never recover. Jesus said, Terry, I know how you feel. You know, I've, I've seen everything human beings have ever done. But I want you to understand the difference in our response to that. You've, uh, you've decided not to be a human being. And I decided to become one. And then he, he, took my emptied out shell and flooded me, drowned me in how he feels toward human beings. It crushed me, it drowned me, it... And I figure it's probably just a glimpse of how he feels toward human beings, but it was enough to almost kill me just from, from his passion toward us as his prized creation, his family, his children. But needless to say, that day they issued a new diagnosis. Um, and where it had said no hope before, it said recovering satisfactorily. Society says for that man, there was no hope. But this book says through Jesus Christ, you don't only get to recover satisfactorily, but there's always hope. He can restore you completely, no matter what's gone on, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you've gone through. That's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't get that with secular psychology. You don't get that with Ernest Hemingway. You don't get that with man's self-help seminars. It's only recorded for us in the Word of God. And folks, as we close our study today, this is what we need to get out there and let our world know. We've seen this every single time. Our world today is full of important questions. 
Their hearts have been prepared with all the atrocities and things that are going on. They know the world's getting worse. They know it's not turning around. And they're full of these same questions that we have the answers for in the Bible. Why do I exist? Where did I come from? Is life after death? Is there any hope? Can God transform me? Can God forgive me? And our world does, it's cheap change today, folks. Just quoting a verse, I'm not against that. Please do something. But it's chump change, it's cheap today when we just quote a verse, but we live a different way. And we have to not just say that the Bible came from God, we have to show them that the Bible came from God. And the way we do that is show them God's amazing grace in action in us. That he's transformed us. That we are not ashamed of saying, listen what he saved me from. Believe it or not, I didn't always grow up in the church. I used to be, me, an ex-headbanger, a drug addict, a scourge of society, immoral, a blasphemer of God. And he saved me. People need to hear my testimony. Listen, they need to hear your testimony. Because they look at us and they, think, they see us now after we've been transformed. And they say, there is no hope. I can never live like that. I can't be like that. I've blown it too much. And so we need to tell them. We need to show them. They need to hear about our background. And we need to demonstrate it's real. That God's amazing grace, it's what unifies us as Christians, whether black or white or free or slave or Jew or Gentile, male or female. We're all one in Christ. They need to see that. It's God's amazing grace and only his grace who can save whether an ex-occultist like me or even a slave trader like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. That's what our world needs to see. Let's be that kind of church this year and make a difference while we can. Amen? We're going to close with this video we saw about a year ago, so hang with me. This is it. And I thought this is the perfect capstone to our study and the need of our society to see God's amazing grace at work in us. That he can put a new song in your heart, no matter what you've done, where you come from. We'll close in prayer after this video. Let's take a look. How many of you like Negro spirituals? An old black lady down south showed me something about the Negro spirituals, and I want to share it with you. Uh, you know, the black folk down south had more sense by accident than some of us have on purpose. You know what I mean? You didn't hear what I said. I heard an old black lady say, son, if the mountain was smooth, you couldn't climb it. Uh-huh. Think about that for a minute. But did you know, she said to me, did you know all, just about all Negro spirituals are written on the black notes of the piano? <laughs> this is absolutely true. You can go home tonight and play almost any Negro spiritual, just play the black notes on the piano. You look skeptical. Now, you can't see it out there, but I want you to watch. Watch. There are five black notes on the piano. And those same five black notes just keep recurring. You can go home tonight and play almost any Negro spiritual. Just play the black notes. Watch. You know that? Every time I feel the spirit. Just black notes. Watch this. That's because the slaves didn't come to America with do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, di, do. That's somebody else's scale, okay? All they had in their musical scale were those five black notes. We know it in music as the pentatonic scale. And they built the power and pathos of the Negro spiritual on five notes. When you study music, you also come across what are known as white spirituals. Did you know that? And they are white composers who work with those that scale, in early America, they used to call this the slave scale. And I'm going to play for you what some musicologists think is the most famous white spiritual built on the slave scale or just the black notes.
Anybody tonight know who wrote that song? I heard it, a man by the name of John Newton. But do you know what John Newton did before he became a Christian? He was the captain of a slave ship. And many believe heard this melody that sounds very much like a West African sorrow chant and wrote the words Amazing Grace and set his words to a slave melody. I looked up that song. I believe God wanted that song written just the way it was written, just so that we would be reminded that as Christians, whether black or white, free or bond, in his eyes, we're all connected. We are connected. And we are connected by God's amazing grace. Hallelujah! We are connected by God's amazing grace. I looked up that song in the Library of Congress. I looked up, I went to the Library of Congress, I looked up that song. And wherever you see it authentically printed, you know what it says? Words, John Newton, melody unknown. I tell the Lord, when I get to heaven, I want to meet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but boy, I want to meet that slave called unknown. <laughs> And, I, and I, I, I recorded that song the way I hear it when I sing it. I still hear the sounds of the slave ships in the water. I want to sing it for you the way John Newton probably first heard it coming up out of the belly of the ship. Listen.
Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder and you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. E for instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing 
to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.